0: This is Louisiana Considered on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Diane Mack. Just ahead on today's show, the Fab Five Return to New Orleans for Queer Eyes, Season 8. We'll talk with one lucky Louisianan whose life was made better by this team of experts. And we catch up with Broadway actor Nick Searle, who takes a job working in Barbara Streisand's basement shopping mall in the comedy Buyer and Seller. But first... One of the world's largest human rights organizations published an extensive report documenting the effects of pollution on some people living in Louisiana's chemical corridor, often referred to as Cancer Alley. The 98-page report makes bold recommendations, calling on the state to be more protective of health and asking federal regulators to pause operations of facilities that endanger nearby residents. Antonia Juhasz, a senior researcher on fossil fuels for Human Rights Watch, led the investigation and compiled the report. She sat down with the Coastal Desk Hallie Parker for more.
1: Antonia, let's start out by talking about what's in this 98-page report. I know you traveled around Louisiana for a year. What were some of your top findings?
2: The main findings are that there is an extreme human health and environmental crisis unfolding in Cancer Alley as a result of the pollution of the fossil fuel and petrochemical sector. We found that the worst polluter in the state is the fossil fuel and petrochemical industry. Then we found that those harms are disproportionately borne by the area's Black residents with the worst polluting facilities concentrated in majority Black neighborhoods were able to provide brand new research and brand new interviews conducted by researchers at Tulane University <laughs> that documented for the first time in Louisiana, the relationship between air pollution and adverse birth outcomes. So low birth weight and preterm birth rates in the worst polluted areas were as much as three times the national average. I've reported on fossil fuels and petrochemicals throughout the world, there is this a growing body of research on the harms on maternal reproductive and newborn health, but there's not enough of it. It's not well enough known. And it's certainly not getting to the people who are being harmed or their care providers. So women do not know about these risks. And this just adds to the body of information that Documents the necessity of reducing the amount of pollution that's coming from these operations.
1: Mm. And this report is coming out at what seems like such a critical time for those who are opposing the build-out of new industrial plants and support more protected air pollution regulation. I know just last week, a federal court blocked the Environmental Protection Agency from enforcing parts of the Civil Rights Act as a result of a lawsuit filed by Governor Landry. So how do you feel about the timing of your report in the current landscape?
2: Our report comes out at a critical moment for Louisiana and for Cancer Alley and for the attempts to protect communities from the harms of fossil fuels and petrochemicals. The Biden administration is taking what looks like an incredible step which would be implementing for the first time a new level of consideration prior to granting permits to consider the impacts of climate for the massive LNG buildout in Louisiana and in other parts of the country. That's in response to community organizing that has been taking place for years, calling out these harms. what, What we have asked for is for the administration to take a same level of consideration into granting any new permits for fossil fuel and petrochemical operations to look at the climate impacts but also to look at the impacts on already overburdened communities and
1: finally human rights watch is you know one of the world's largest human rights organizations what impact do you hope the report has
2: i think human rights watch has the ability to elevate the concerns that have already been articulated by local community residents and researchers for many decades, but to help bring it onto an international human rights stage and to hopefully bring our extremely well-known and regarded research and advocacy skills to the table. There is definitely a a profound track record of Human Rights Watch being able to share its detailed investigations and research with policymakers and having that research result in policy change. And that is, again, because of the rigor um, of our research and because of the track record of our organization of bringing sound recommendations grounded in local need. So we expect that the federal government and the state government take our recommendations into account and should hopefully act on them. Antonia Yuhas is a senior researcher
1: for the Human Rights
0: Watch. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack.
3: It to win it, honey. Let's go. You guys, our hero this week is Tim Keel. Hey, Tim Keel. He's possibly one of the biggest Kiss superfans of all time. Oh, Wait whoa. a second.
4: I have the perfect thing. Oh. Yeah! Ha! Queer
0: Eye has officially returned to New Orleans for season eight. If you haven't seen the show, the premise consists of a team of gay experts known as the Fab Five, traveling across the country to help one lucky individual improve their life through a process known as a make better. One of those individuals is Louisianan Tim Keel, a KISS superfan, father of two, and longtime caretaker to his brother. He joins us now for more on this Queer Eye experience. Thanks for being here.
4: Hey, thank you. How you doing today?
0: And we are also joined by his daughter and nominator, Melody Keel. Thanks for coming on.
5: Hi, thank you so much for having us.
0: Melody, I'd like to start with you. Can you tell us why you decided to nominate your dad for Queer Eye? What were you hoping the Fab Five could accomplish?
5: Yeah, so I nominated my dad one night. I was, I was watching Queer Eye, having a glass of wine, and I was like, you know, I think my dad would be really good on this show. So I looked up um, how to nominate someone and, and sent in my email. Um, With some pictures of him and kind of the reason why I thought he would be so good is um, there's a few things you have to know about my dad. Number one, um, he is the ultimate Kiss super fan. So I grew up in a house full of Kiss memorabilia that he had been collecting since he was a child. Um, I've also never seen him out of a Kiss shirt. Um, And so even our fancy family events, he's wearing a button up Kiss shirt. Um, I've never seen him in anything but cargo pants (laughs) and um, kind of tennis shoes. And so the idea of seeing him in something else besides a kiss shirt was uh, very exciting to me. (laughs) And then also, you know, my dad's just a really good guy. Um, His brother uh, got into an accident before I was born, over 30 years ago, and my dad really kind of committed his life to taking care of him. Um, And so, you know, feeding him and getting him in and out of bed every day and really um, that's kind of been his life's work up until recently um, when my uncle passed away this past year, um, which was a really big adjustment for him. But, you know, he really is selfless and just a wonderful dad and such a just a sweet, genuine guy. Um, (laughs) And so, um, I thought he would be a really good fit for the show, and I just wanted something special for him and for him to have something kind of just for him and his life, a really special, fun experience for him. Yeah,
4: that feel great.
5: Yeah.
4: <laughs> what a compliment.
0: And, Tim, can you tell us about your reaction when you found out you would be on the show? Were you nervous, excited, or um, something else entirely? I was
4: just kind of, I didn't really know what the show was about, really. Um, I had seen it a couple of times, but, I didn't really pay attention much, so um, yeah. When when Melody told me about it, I was like, "Yeah, sure, I'll do anything." That sounds fun to me.
0: There are five elements in the Make Better process: home improvement, cooking, fashion, grooming, and culture. Were any of these particularly impactful, or any moments of filming that really stuck out to you?
4: Yeah, I would. Have, I would say the one that stuck out to me the most was uh, Cramo helping me with my mind and trying to get into my right headspace because I really I was really down and out I was kind of in a really bad place when all this happened it came at the exact right time for me and so working on my head and thinking about which way I have to go in life and all he really did help me with that one so that really did stand out I figured that was my the place where I had to start um, and once I got my head straight then I could think about my house and my my clothes and You know, just get my life straight.
0: And Melody, what was it like for you to watch your dad go through this process?
5: Absolutely insane. (laughs) Um, Just seeing physically the difference um, of my dad from when we left him. And then four days later, he looked like an entirely different person. He looked like he lost about 20 years off of his life. He was like a young spring chicken and was so fashionable. (laughs) Um, and also, you know, I saw my dad being at a really low point in his life and having them come in and really, um, you know, giving him this mantra of, I deserve to be happy and finding out what, you know, he can do in his life to make himself happy and find goodness and positivity in his life um, has really, I think, turned things around for him in a lot of ways. And I'll always be grateful for
4: that. Yeah, it helped me out a lot.
0: We are speaking with Tim Keel, the star of a new episode of Queer Eye and his daughter and nominator, Melody. Tim, part of your story is the story of your brother. Tell us a little bit about him and your relationship with him and how that really impacted the course of your life.
4: Um, Well, he got in an accident and he was brain damaged. He had a closed head injury. He was paralyzed on his left side. I, I just couldn't see him sitting in a home or sitting in a hospital somewhere. So my mom and I just had to get him home. And so once we got him home, it was just a constant care. You know, he had to be taken care of 24 hours a day. So my mom and I just, we, we got together and we did what we had to do to make sure he was comfortable. You know, he was a good guy growing up. He he helped me out a lot. And uh, I thought he deserved it. It's family. I don't know. You know, I, I just had to take care of him.
0: Yeah.
4: So I just did it. And I kept on doing it, rolling, rolling, rolling. Next thing you know, 20 years passed, 30 years passed, and I was still going. And it just became a part of my life. I didn't even think about it anymore. And people would tell me, man, what are you doing? What are you doing? I'm like, man, take care of my brother. It didn't seem different to me. It seemed like that was what I was supposed to be doing, you know?
0: Yeah. I'm sorry for your loss.
4: Thank you. It was a a bad loss. But I'm working on it. Yeah.
0: And, of course, Queer Eye is a show that requires you to be vulnerable and on TV. Tell us a bit about what it's like to open up about your feelings in such a public way.
4: Well, they make you feel so comfortable that you kind of feel like they're not even there after a while. You kind of forget it's all going on, and you just start opening up. Uh, I actually don't remember some of the things I said, so it's going to be a surprise to me. So, yeah, I mean, I just felt like I was sitting around talking to people, and they you know, they were just all real positive influences, you know?
0: Melody, what were the biggest changes that you saw in your dad after his Make Better What was it like to see him come out of that process?
5: Um, Well, he seemed pretty shell-shocked to begin with. Um, He kind of was like, I cannot believe this happened to me. I didn't know what I was walking into. I can't believe that this kind of all was for me. Um, And so that was really fun to see. Um, It is still shocking every time we meet to go to dinner And he is in a button-up shirt and nice pants. It's still (laughs) shocking to see.
4: No Kiss logo anywhere. (laughs) underpants have a Kiss logo.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's definitely been a big change, definitely.
0: (laughs) And now, a year later, what have you learned on the show that you're still applying to your life today?
4: Well, I'm trying to keep myself going. physically clean, keep my beard a little shorter than I used to. Um, I'm really conscious of the way I'm dressing now. I do go into my closet and I try to find some clothes if I'm going somewhere nice or just in general, you know, it makes you feel better. It does make you feel better. I never realized that. Um, I'm keeping my house cleaner. Just every aspect of what they did. I'm trying to think more positive, stay in a positive uh, way. And that's it. Just trying to keep it all together and trying to keep in my mind what they told me about and what to do, you know?
0: Tim Keel, the star of a new episode of Queer Eye, and his daughter and nominator, Melody. Thank you both for being here.
4: Thank
5: you. Thank you for having us.
4: Yes, Healing Journey, we're upon you.
0: From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Le Petit Theater in New Orleans continues its season with Jonathan Tolan's comedy, Buyer and Seller, and Seller is spelled C-E-L-L-A-R. It stars Broadway's Nick Searley, who recently performed at this historic theater in December in the Skivvies, Best in Snow. Nick is back in this challenging one-man show, and he joins us now. Nick, welcome to Louisiana Considered.
3: Thank you so much. Nice to be back. Let's set the stage. You play
0: a struggling actor. Tell us about your character. Who is he, and what is his dilemma?
3: <laughs> okay, so I play the I play six roles in the show, but the main character is named Alex Moore, and the show is based on real life, which is in 2010. Barbara Streisand wrote a coffee table book called My Passion for Design, and it is all about her estate, specifically. The shopping mall that she built in her basement of her Malibu home. That is real. That is not made up. She yeah. built a shopping mall in her basement where she keeps all of her old things like dresses and a doll collection. There's a frozen yogurt, um, sweet shop. And so that is real. And the premise of the play is what would happen if somebody worked in the shopping mall in Barbara Streisand's basement?
0: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so in the context of buyer and seller, one would think seller would be spelled S-E-L-L-E-R, but that's not the case here. This is an actual seller in yes. Barbara Streisand's real life home. That's correct. So tell us more about the plot.
3: So the fictional, the plot of the show is what would happen if somebody worked down there, if she's the only customer. Um, it is about loneliness. It's about finding yourself in unexpected circumstances. Um, And it's about lifestyles of the rich and famous, you know, on crack, essentially. (laughs) As told through a struggling actor's survival job in Barbara's basement.
0: And you said you play six roles in this uh, one man comedy. How challenging is that for you? And do you pull from your own background to get into character?
3: Yes, I think that every character that I play in this play is an extension of myself in some way otherwise it's very hard to relate. So I feel like all the six including Barbara are there are elements of myself in in each of the uh, each of the characters that Alex has to do the essence of but he doesn't do an impression of Barbara, which he sets up with a legal disclaimer at the top of the show because um, enough people do her in quotes so it's um, you don't need you don't need me to do an impression for for you. Essentially, is what the <laughs> what I say at the top <laughs> of the show. So when we when I have the conversations, the scenes that take place with Barbara in the show, um, it's I do more of the essence of her versus an impression. And I feel like of all of the characters, since five of them are fiction and one of them is Barbara herself, I feel like she is the hardest one because she is real (laughs) and everyone else you can sort of i have a little more liberty to play with to create some sort of something uh but with her because she has such a presence in the real world i think i do have to be a little more accurate with her
0: (laughs) for example
3: well she's got a specific dialect she is from brooklyn and um a lot of the stories that she tells within the play, she has told in interviews a lot. She loves to recycle the same stories. And one specifically is about a hot water bottle that she um, used as a child, as opposed she didn't have a real doll. So she had to use a hot water bottle that she dressed up in sweaters and hats. So it's my favorite scene in the play where she talks about her hot water bottle. And I'll just say... I love saying hot water bottle as Barbara Streisand.
0: <laughs> now, who are the other characters, Nick?
3: So Alex Moore is the lead character that you're going to follow into Barbara's basement, who works in the basement. Sharon is the house manager, and she essentially is described as, uh, she looked like she's been through it. Uh, picture, Cloris Leachman, right after she found out Phyllis was canceled. That's, that's her description. Um, Barry is Alex's boyfriend, who is a big film buff, um, an underappreciated screenwriter uh, and and habitual watcher of TCM, that's how he is described. And Vincent, who is the person who gets Alex the interview for Barbara's Basement. And then finally, of course, Barbara's husband, James Brolin. He's got a very brief cameo. Wow.
0: (laughs) Was it difficult for you to to do all six and to to, to memorize all those lines?
3: You know, when I first did the show, uh, that was the feat. Getting from point A to point B, figuring out mile markers, I call them within the script, of connecting the dots, the transitions between the scenes, and not getting confused or lost. We revisit a lot of locations throughout the show and revisit a lot of the characters come and go. So it is sort of... Just figuring out how to get from point A to point B and memorize that, and then move on from point B to point C. That was my my struggle when I first memorized it. But this is my tenth production of Buyer and Seller. Um, apparently, according to John Tolan's, the playwright, I do hold the record for most performances. Um, so I feel like now, what I appreciate with doing this show is I've done it in so many cities now, ten different cities. I really have to be in tune with how the audience is listening to me because they're the other character that I'm not playing. So I have to constantly check in with them to see how they're responding and listening to the storytelling so that I know how to sort of adjust and keep in the moment and fresh. Because if I just go on autopilot and say the lines, then I'm not really listening to how they're receiving the information, right? So I now feel like I'm just, constantly listening to how they're listening to this crazy story and kind of adjusting my performance based on their reaction it's really fun
0: you know you can learn a lot uh from comedy is there something folks may take away from this work that they can apply to life in general
3: without spoiling anything the takeaway that i get from this play is that because so much of this is about barbara's stuff all the stuff that she keeps around her. But what really is important is how much space you take up in the world and what you put inside that circle is more important than all of that material stuff that, that, that she sort of keeps around her. And so I think that's a message um, that I walk away with, with this play. Material stuff is just stuff. It's really about the people that you keep inside your circle. That is more important.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful. Actor Nick Searly, it's been fun talking with you. Thank you so
3: much. It was fun talking to you.
0: Actor Nick Searley stars as Alex Moore, a struggling actor in L.A. in Jonathan Tolan's comedy Buyer and Seller. Performances run through February 3rd at Le Petit Theatre in the French Quarter. More info at lepetitetheatre.com.
3: A customer. <laughs> Not just a customer. The customer. <laughs> browsing and humming to herself and man this lady can hum <laughs> okay just act normal sharon said but what is normal in this situation i mean what is even next to normal okay, just breathe. Just breathe.
0: from wwno in new orleans and wrkf in Baton rouge You've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Thanks to our guest, a senior researcher on fossil fuels for Human Rights Watch, Antonia Buhas. Guest on season eight of Queer Eye, Melody and Tim Keel. And from Le Petit's theater's production of Buyer and Seller, Broadway actor Nick Seeley. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber and our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcast. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation.